We continue this morning with our study of uh, this letter to the Hebrews, known as a, a sermonic uh, letter, uh, having characteristics of a letter, also characteristics that are, are missing characteristics of a letter, as in uh, no greeting, no particular addressees, and no identification of the one who wrote it. Strange note if you receive one in the mail. Uh, at the same time, it is, uh, it is a letter because it's sent to a particular people that can be gleaned uh, and at the same time uh, has characteristics of, a, of a, a sermon as well. Uh, we are this morning looking into Hebrews chapter 6. Our focus will be on verses 4 through 12, uh, but for the sake of context, I'll begin the reading in Hebrews 6 verse 1. Hear this word of God. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and obstruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared it in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. And if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come this day, we pray that you, in accordance with your promise, would be at work within us. We pray that you would be honored and pleased as we come to worship not only through the songs that we sing and the prayers that we offer, uh, but being a people who give an ear to hear your word, uh, incline ourselves and open ourselves, our minds to understand uh, as the Spirit enables and to give hearts that we long to be shaped and conformed to reach the maturity that you have begun and are working until we become more and more like Christ. Lord, use this time uh, to be at work within us for the sake of your name, the benefit of those who are around us, and the joy that we may experience in our salvation. To you be all praise and glory in Christ, we pray. Amen. Thomas Jefferson is, is reported to have had a, a relatively interesting Bible. As many of you are aware that toward the end of his life, he began working. Those who were defenders of, of Jefferson would say that he wasn't trying to rewrite the Bible, but he was trying to write a book, a book of morals, and, 
even titled uh, of it the, the Life and Morals of, of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, but what he did in order to write this book was he would go into this Bible and he would cut out portions that he felt inspired by, and then he would paste them into another book, a book that is now in the possession of the Smithsonian Institution. But whether someone is a defender of Jefferson or somebody is a critic of his methods, it's become known as the Jefferson Bible. And when he completed it in 1820, it said that he read it every day of his life until he died in 1826. He built his life upon the premises wisely, the premises of Jesus Christ, but he built his life merely on the premises of Jesus Christ with no evidence and much evidence to suggest that he discarded the deity and the salvation that belongs to those who trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, in no way am I endorsing Jefferson's practice of cutting and pasting from the Bible, but I do have to admit Throughout this week, I've been very, very sympathetic to it. Because this is an incredibly difficult passage that we have this morning. It is inconvenient. And if I thought that perhaps I could get away without you all noticing and just skipping over it and moving on to something else, particularly the first part of what we read, I might have been tempted to do so. But then I was reminded throughout the week that I have almost obnoxiously reminded you, don't buy what we say. We're going to work our way verse by verse through this. And so we've committed ourselves to that. And so if I had tried to get away with it, you all would have figured it out. And then I'd have got all the emails. And so that would have been a whole other kind of, of a headache. So I persevered and studied the passage and worked my way through the passage. And I'm still working my way through the passage because it is a difficult passage. And so what I want to do this morning is, is a little bit uh, diff different in some ways. Um, I, I don't think that the passage, because of the complexity of it, is one that would be adequate for me just to give you my final synopsis and then kind of move on into the applications. Uh, but at least from the very beginning, we're going to try to unpack um, the, the complicated aspect of this passage. We're going we're to look at detail. We're going to dig in there. And, and in that, there might be some rambling. First service was a whole lot of rambling. Hopefully I cleaned some of that up between services. Uh, but I can promise you I didn't clean it all up. Um, because we're going to look and I'm going to share my thoughts and, 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 and uh, where I end up landing. Uh, some of you will agree and others will be unconvinced. And then we're going to move on to the rule of the primary intent of the writer of Hebrews for this passage of the scripture. Uh, because his intent was not to stumble, uh, cause us to stumble or to just kind of focus and it wasn't to create theological controversy. He was making a very practical point, which is made not in the beginning part that we must look at, uh, but in what flows from that. And so uh, by the time we're done here, whether you agree or disagree with my ramblings and in, in my study this week, I do hope that we all will be in agreement and encouraged uh, toward the hope that the writer of the Hebrews intends for us to have through this passage. Now, the original readers of this letter must have felt like the author had picked up a baseball bat and smacked them right between the eyes. Remember, this was one letter, so it wasn't broken up over a course of weeks as we've been doing. And so he just told them, look, you've become dull in hearing and you're hardened on heart. And now he talks about those who are falling away. And he warns them against falling, those who are falling away and says, for those who fall away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. And he's giving them a very, very stern and difficult warning. 
And I don't know what was the thought that first went through their mind, but what is inescapable in mine and in many of your minds is this question. Wait a second. Is it possible for us to lose our salvation? Now, I would tell you that my view is no, it is not possible. It is not possible because I believe that the preponderance of the teaching of Scripture tells us that we cannot lose our salvation, primarily because salvation is a gift that comes from God that is secured and worked by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, no one is able to take those that the Father has given me from my hands. And so salvation belongs to our God, which is also a declaration of the Scripture, which is good news for me. Because the question of could I lose my salvation, the answer would be absolutely yes, because I've lost car keys while they were in my hands. I mean, you know, it's kind of busy, and I'm picking things up, and, you know, where did I put my, oh, yeah, and the little ring is around the finger so that I could have, use my hands. And I've looked for a couple minutes for keys that were already in my hands. So if salvation could be lost, I could absolutely lose it, because I think I can lose pretty much anything. But I do believe that the preponderance of, of Scripture over and over again reminds us that salvation is a gift from God. It is ours by God's grace through faith, which he gives us that gift as well, in believing and trusting in what Christ has done for us. And because we are not only gifted with salvation, we are the gifts that God has given to his son, Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs to our God, therefore we can't lose it. And yet we come to a passage like this that seems to suggest, at the very least, well, maybe, maybe we can lose salvation, or if that's not what it's saying, what is this passage saying to us, particularly verses 4 through 6? Well, I was encouraged by a Bible scholar by the name of William Lane, who said this, the first step toward a correct interpretation of this difficult passage is to see it as a whole, which means to look at verses 4 through 6 as a whole, and then also to see it in its context, which is all of chapter 6, but particularly as, as it flows afterwards. But the first step toward uh, the incorrect interpretation is to see it as a whole. Um, interpretation will be advanced by addressing the passage with a series of questions. And, and so I've taken his questions, and I've kind of retooled them so that uh, it would... Uh, kind of fit the way that my mind thinks. Uh, but the first question is this, is who are the people that are in view here? Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a church, a group of people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, pretty much all, if not all of them, having grown up with a Jewish background. We're not certain exactly where, but most uh, scholars would believe that this church was probably in Jerusalem. Uh, but there is almost universal agreement that this is a church that, if not exclusively, was overwhelmingly made up of, of Jewish um, believers. The second question is this, what's the situation to which they are exposed that might cause them to fall away? And this is a group of people that are being encouraged to continue to be strong in the faith, in fact, uh, appealing back to the faith that God has, as God's plan of redemption from the very beginning. You're talking about the, 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 the God speaking and the final word and, and the covenants and Jesus is greater than, than, uh, than Moses and greater than the law. Constantly taking them back and showing how from the very beginning God was using people and events and pointing to the promise of the Messiah. 
that they would be strengthened and they would be encouraged and they would stand strong in the midst of the persecution that they had all, always experienced, but seeming to be experiencing in greater measure right now. He's writing to a people that are showing up, but they're burned out. They're tired. They're worn out. They're disappointed. They're discouraged. And they are likely wrestling with doubts. While they're in a unique situation, if we were to take the attitudes that they possessed, we would see that the writer of Hebrews is writing to a people that's not entirely different than us. Because we too can experience any one of those things, whether persecuted or not. We often experience difficulties in life that discourage us and point us wondering what is God doing and where is God? That leads to us, us having doubts and we begin to wonder. And so this word was written to that particular people, but it's also preserved and written for us as well because it's, it's pertinent to us. But the people that originally received this letter in the midst of their persecution saw a number of people that had been part of the church to leave, to fall away. In particular, it seems that they were going back to their old patterns and to a sacrificial system. Not necessarily saying, well, I don't believe anything about Jesus or that Jesus was a person. That, was, that was, seemed to be evident to them. But they were putting their hope not in the completed work of Christ, but putting their hope back into their participation, their sacrifices, as if somehow that was going to save them. But it begs another question, is if the writer is saying to them, as a warning, don't fall away, we need to be clear as to what he means by falling away. Most of the scholars are, are probably in agreement, but again, going to William Lane, who I think uh, said it most succinctly, he said this, the sin that the writer is writing and warns his friends to avoid is commonly called apostasy. Now, here's apostasy. Apostasy consists in deliberate, planned, intelligent decision to renounce publicly association with Christ. This is not, apostasy is not somebody who is struggling and is doubting and therefore um, is, is not necessarily walking in the way they ought to. Apostasy is not somebody who is saying something foolish in the midst of their discouragement or their doubts. Apostasy is somebody who has had the faith clearly presented to them they are able to uh, express it. And in some point or another, in order for it to have be apostasy, to have claimed to embrace it, because just simply rejecting the faith is, is not, enable somebody is not an apostasy, but somebody who claimed to embrace the faith at one point in time, now thinking again and saying, you know what, I don't believe that anymore, and I no longer associate myself as a Christian. I no longer associate myself with Jesus Christ. That is called apostasy when somebody who had been part of the visible body of Christ now says, I reject, I reject that as uh, my identity and as my hope and as my salvation. Now, that's somewhat technical, and it's important, though, to recognize that it is a, it is a very intentional, it is a very deliberate uh, action to, to be apostasy. Somebody doesn't fall into apostasy. We're not seeing somebody who, out of their doubts, may express even denial of Jesus in some way, but it is a persistent position. Scriptures teach us and show us examples of, of 
several people who, in whatever their emotional and mental condition, had denied Jesus. Most famously, perhaps Peter, on the night before uh, Jesus was crucified, after Jesus had been arrested, denied being associated with Jesus three times. If it was simply the denial, somebody who says is embarrassed, is uncomfortable, who is even ashamed uh, in that moment of lack of, of clear faith and therefore unclear thinking, then Peter could never have been restored, if that's what's in view here with what the writer's saying. Peter was very powerfully restored, and not only restored like, okay, well, we'll let you back into the club, but he, along with the other apostles, used powerfully in the advancement of the gospel as a foundation for the church that we now benefit from. And so this is not somebody who's just frustrated and, and discouraged, disappointed, and in so doing, falling in a way that we would think of falling. But this is somebody who, falling away here, the, the term here is being used as not really somebody who, who's falling, but somebody who's jumping and, and making sure they're staying away. It, it's very intentional. They are rejecting the faith that they once claimed that they had identified with. But the bigger question is then, why is it impossible to restore to repentance those who publicly deny association with Jesus Christ? And I think the answer for that depends on certain understandings, particularly as it relates to the description of the people that we have in view here in this particular passage. Because the writer writes very poetically here as we read in, in verse 4. It's impossible in the case of those, so he's, he's focusing on a particular type of, of, of group of people, uh, those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. And I'm going to tell you that when I, my instinct of reading and of, of all of these um, descriptive terms is to spiritualize them, to assume that every one of them uh, is shorthand of somebody who has received the Holy Spirit, and only believers receive the Holy Spirit, and had the Spirit dwelling within them and had been uh, an active part of the body of Christ as, as any other believer. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I suspect that many people, maybe even most people, uh, would, would do that. And, but as I've been looking at this and as I've been studying during this week, I've realized that there is a sense in which I perhaps have over-spiritualized uh, certain uh, aspects of this poetic uh, description. The references to the one who has been enlightened and to those who, the one, and those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Immediately, my mind goes to the enlightenment of the, of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit who is at work within us gives us a, a mind, and, and we're able to now grasp things that we would not grasp within our own intellect. And, and the tasting of the heavenly gift, I assume, was the Holy Spirit himself. But with the help of some of the Bible scholars that I've read this week, I've realized that's not necessarily what's in view here. It, it's not what the passage is itself is saying. It says for those who have been enlightened, but it doesn't say anything about enlightened by the Holy Spirit. And so many Bible scholars are saying that the enlightenment is that they have been exposed to the faith. In other words, they, you know, they have heard a clear presentation. They, they now understand what the Christian faith is all about because they've heard it explained, explained to them, they understand it, and they even identified with it. 
they also say that the the taste of the heavenly gift is not necessarily having the presence of the Holy Spirit. But it's speaking of communion. In fact, they would also say that the once enlightened and having received that faith and identified with that faith, they would say that that refers to, would, would be a shorthand uh, connection to baptism, which would make sense. They were all Jewish believers, and so they would have needed to have been baptized uh, to enter into membership in that church. And so uh, a number of Bible scholars are, are saying that the, these first two descriptions really just refer to the, the sacraments of the church that we participate in for those who are part of the visible body. Baptism, or at least understanding the faith and saying, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I, I believe. And the second is coming to the table and participating regularly, tasting uh, the, that which points to us uh, of what Jesus Christ has done. The idea of sharing in the Holy Spirit, that was a little more difficult for me as I was wrestling with that. I mean, sharing with the Spirit, well, clearly we have the Holy Spirit in view because, I mean, he's, he's mentioned here. But then I began to realize that he's talking about the sharing of the Spirit is the sharing in the Spirit is not necessarily saying the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And if you think about it from another way, kind of step back and look at this in another way. The Holy Spirit dwells within every person who is a believer in Jesus Christ, which is, enables us to believe in the first place. He dwells fully within every person who is a believer in Jesus Christ. He doesn't dwell in part. We don't share the Spirit. If that was the way that it worked, then the best bet would be to be a member of a church that has, you know, like three or four people at most, because you get a bigger share, right? I mean, if it was just, you know, however many people are, we have to share the Spirit, and we get to share in the Spirit. But it's been suggested that what this means is, as those who are participants in the body of Christ, and in the body of Christ, the Spirit is always at work. And the Spirit gifts, gives gifts to those who are believers in Jesus Christ, and those gifts are meant to be used for the benefit of the body. So therefore, if there's somebody who's part of the body and they are the beneficiary of the Spirit being at work through the believers in the church, they have shared in the work of the Holy Spirit within that particular context. And that seems to be something that is, uh, is possible to be in view here. And then finally tasted the goodness of the word. It's not only believers who find comfort in God's word. Hallmark Company has cards that are shared with many, many people, citing Psalm 23 or some other passage that brings comfort when the words to hear it. The power of God's word is, is grace to many. That doesn't necessarily mean that it is a, a saving grace. But this would seem to be an indication that the, they're, they're writing to people who had been in a church where the word was regularly taught and talked about and studied. And so they had benefited from that, whether it's wisdom that came from the Proverbs or Somewhat like Jefferson's idea of, well, these words of Jesus are, are worthy. His directions are, are worthy of, of building a, a philosophy of life. They had tasted and recognized the goodness of the word and their life. Now, I, I realize with all of this is that those of you, there are many of you who are probably skeptical and saying, okay, 
that seems rather convenient. You're going totally against what the natural reading of this word might be. And I'm very aware of that. And I'm very aware that if you are skeptical of that, I have not convinced you in any way, shape, or form. But I would like to encourage you to at least consider it for this reason. If my musings, with the help of the many scholars, are anywhere near the ballpark of what the writer of the Hebrews intended, it would seem to be consistent with the other teachings in Scripture, particularly Jesus' own parables. And, and we see that because the following words that to kind of fortify the, the difficult theological things that he's just said in verses 4 through 6, uh, the writer picks up again in verse 7, and he uses kind of covenantal language to, to seal what he means. He says he uses an illustration first. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And so the covenantal language that he's being used here, because with the covenant, when God entered into a covenant, he said, you know, if you, if you obey me, if you do what I want you to do, then you'll be blessed. And if you disobey me, if you disregard me, well, then you will be cursed. So there's kind of a, a covenantal language here, but the illustration that he's using is very consistent with the, some of the metaphors and the parables that Jesus used. Now, the first one that comes to mind uh, is, is the parable of the seed in the soils, right? The seed of the gospel, in this case, he's saying the rain that comes down on the field, and, and the scriptures tell us that the God in his grace pours down rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. So there is a common grace that goes to everybody, and everybody believes it. And the word of God goes out to people, and there is certain benefit to those who take it seriously, even if they limit it to someone like, uh, like Jefferson had, only to the moral principles. There's, there's benefit. It certainly, well, it doesn't save anybody to limit themselves to the moral principle. Certainly far better to live that way than, well, make up your own way of living. At least it's consistent with the way that God has designed life. It doesn't save anybody. We still have the problem of our own sin. But Jesus talks about the, the, the parable of the seed in the soil and tells us, look, there's the seed goes down, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily produce the same. And that's sort of what he's saying here. Those who have been the ground and the, and the rain has come down on them, God has graced them. In some, they become incredibly fruitful. And they're blessed. And others, you know, what grows up is a bunch of thistles, contrary to fruit. You can't pluck fruit from, uh, from, from the thistle. And he says it's, it's useful. And so the ultimate end for that which bears no fruit is to be discarded, to be burned. Brings to mind a lot of the other teachings that the scriptures have in using this covenantal language. But it's also consistent with Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds. Those of you who are Bible students may be familiar with that, but for those who you know, might be a little fuzzy on it, the disciples had come to Jesus and saying, you know, what do we do? There's, there's people here that probably are not really believers, and he's talking about the church, and, and the idea that in the body there, there are believers and unbelievers that are living side by side, and, and the disciples, should we do something about this? And in the parable that Jesus is using for the kingdom as it's expressed here on earth, he's saying here's the problem. The wheat... And this particular weed look a lot alike. 
And therefore, the disciples are not necessarily going to be able to discern which is really wheat and which is really a weed. And they may identify the weed, and they may get rid of a lot of the weeds, but the danger, Jesus said, is that if you start making that your practice and trying to pluck out all of the weeds, you're probably also going to get rid of some of the wheat. So what you need to do is just continue recognizing that this is the tension that you have in this life, that in any church it is going to have both believers and unbelievers sitting, and they're going to, if, they, if they've embraced the same code of ethic, which is to walk the way that God has told us to, they may look very much alike. The Lord looks into the heart. The Lord is the one who is aware. He's aware of who to whom he has given grace to believe and to repent and to be saved. And, and so at the day of judgment, the Lord himself will take care of that. It's not our job to weed out certain people. And the description that the writer of the Hebrews here is, is, is talking about, if I'm anywhere in the ballpark, which again, I'm basically plagiarizing from a number of Bible scholars without giving them any credit whatsoever, in part because there, there are several of them, it would seem consistent. And since we're to interpret Scripture with Scripture, I feel very comfortable in continuing to hold the idea that we can't lose our salvation because our salvation has us. But you got to tell you, it's a tremendous relief because, you know, you don't know what was at stake this week. I come to a whole different view. Now I get defrocked by the Presbytery. i got to move, get a whole new job. My whole life's up, and, you know, if I'd come to a different conclusion. So the pressure was on, but I do promise you, I tried as best as I could to look at this objectively today, but pff, what a relief. I can still believe what I said I believe in the first place, and the elders don't have to fire me. Um, so that part is good. Hopefully most of you are in agreement with my conclusion, even if a little fuzzy on my argument to get there, uh, but I would encourage you to kind of look and consider the fact that there is a way of looking that to be faithful to what the text actually says that is not superimposing neither a, a preferred theological idea, nor superimposing super spiritual language onto the words as they are particularly expressed. And when you look at the passage that way, this passage is consistent with the overwhelming teaching of Scripture. And it seems to suggest that there are people within the body of Christ, some of whom have fallen away, others of whom are hurting in the same way, still doubting Maybe wondering, well, why did they fall? I mean, because sometimes the people that fall away, it's quite shocking. You never would have seen it coming. And then wondering, would I fall away? And what happens if I fall away? The writer of the Hebrews here is, is, is kind of giving an answer to that question. But as the, as the most of the Bible scholars are, are, are saying, pardon the metaphor, don't get lost in the weeds. Because that's not the primary intent, to create a theological debate about whether or not we can lose our salvation. It is a statement that he's making, an illustration that he's making. One I wish he hadn't made, because it would have been a whole lot more convenient and much easier week for me. To get to his primary point, which is to encourage those who were in the faith, who were holding to Jesus Christ, to stand firm, to persevere, He's writing here to reassure them of their standing with God and then instructs them how they can reaffirm their, their own assurance here. And we see that as he picks up in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. So there's a certainty of the people that he's talking to. And there's a reason for that. Things that belong to salvation. 
And then he goes on. And he says here in verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And so we, we see his intent. He's coming back. The whole purpose of the writing of the letter. So context is important always in interpreting the scripture. His whole intent is to write to believers and to encourage them to stand firm regardless of their circumstances. And some things are challenging and some things are difficult. They're difficult to experience in life and sometimes God's ways are difficult for us to comprehend and creating confusion, which then doesn't sustain us. But the writer has changed his tone here. And rather than using a club to hit them over the head, he's now using a, a velvet glove. And he's saying, look, look I, we, even though we've spoken firmly, and the reason he's speaking firmly is because they've become dull in their hearing because of their circumstances and focusing on, on other things than on the promise of God, things that every one of us uh, are inclined to do. We're very sure of better things for you. In other words, if you are one who is hoping in Jesus Christ, don't get bogged down on the theological question of can you or can't you lose your salvation, but focus on, is this my hope? And if I'm hoping in Jesus, then how do I live out that faith? Notice a couple of things here in this passage. He has a basis for the reason for his assurance, the writer of the Hebrews does. And the basis of his certainty that there are better things ahead for those who are believers in Jesus Christ is the justice of God. The assurance is rooted not first and foremost in the people, although that's in view, but it's rooted in God. That's what it says in verse 10. God is not so unjust that he's going to overlook or, or forget your works. And so the basis of our assurance is the character and the nature of God, which is evident in what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And what he's saying in that is because of the character of God and because of the justice of God, in this particular case, he's, he's not going to say, you people who have persevered and who have done things for those who are around you, for the sake of my name, yeah, forget those things. There's an aspect of the character of, of God that gives us assurance. That he is aware of what we do for his sake and for the sake of his kingdom. But along with the basis of our assurance is the justice of God. We see that kind of secondary to that, but connected to it, is that the motive of their work was done for the love of God. Again, look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. So the work that was done was done for people who were in need. But the motive of doing was to honor God and because of the love that they had received from God. Jesus himself had said this, what you do for the least, you're doing for me. That's, what, that's the characteristics of the believer. We love God. We love other people with the same love that we have received. And Jesus says, when you are motivated because I have loved you 
and you minister to other people, particularly those with needs, I count that as ministering to me. Martin Luther famously said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And it brings into view what overarching view of Scripture. Jesus was asked, what's, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, and your strength. And I'll throw in the second one, which is inseparable from it. Then love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, all of the law hangs on these two principles. There's a priority. God is the priority. But there's inseparability. If we belong to God, if we want to love God, we must love our neighbors. And these people had done that. And they're being affirmed. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, on the basis of the character of God and basis of the fact that you're, you, you love God who has loved you and you've demonstrated that by the way that the works that you have done, God is not unjust as to miss that. And they're being reaffirmed in part to look at their own lives and to see what God sees when he looks at our lives. Now, one of the questions is, well, what work? Because the writer doesn't go into any great detail here. He does in, in chapter 10. We're not going to turn there right now. We'll get there in the fall. But, you know, but if you were to move ahead into Hebrews chapter 10, you're going to read as the writer talks very specifically about the persecution that had been going on and how this body, the, the church here that he's writing to, had been so intentional and faithful to minister to those who were oppressed and those who were hurting and those who were imprisoned, those who were in need. They had gone sacrificially. They could have gone back and hidden, isolated themselves from the culture. And that's one of the fundamentalist tendencies in, in contemporary Christianity. How far can you isolate yourself from that which seems to be impure? Degree of separation is, is the mark of holiness. But the mark of holiness of Christ is one who recognizes he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. And you're willing to go and put yourself on the, uh, even in danger at times, but certainly to be inconvenienced and to be uncomfortable, to minister to other people who are in need because you recognize they've been created after the image of God, therefore they have value. And we have been loved when we were unlovable. And so now we go love those other people. We see in these people that's being commended that they had done these things in their past. And the writer of the Hebrew says, and you're still doing them. And so here we see not only an affirmation, as first of all, it's a way for us to reevaluate our faith. Am I trusting God and his character and his justice? Am I motivated because uh, for the love of God and the glory of God because I recognize that God has loved me? And how am I expressing that? I'm expressing it by ministering to other people. And, and this is the teaching of almost the whole New, Te almost the whole New Testament, all of, all of Scripture. People get confused on that, particularly sometimes in our, our Reformed circles. James deals with this, and he says, you know, uh, you want to show me your faith by what you believe? Uh, um, I'll show you what I believe by what I do. And faith without works is dead. And other people get a little uncomfortable with that and thinking, well, that doesn't seem right. I mean, how anti-Pauline, Paul, over and over again, says we're saved by grace through faith and alone. Uh, but they overlook the fact that as Paul was writing to the Galatians in his most um, direct and, and terse letter that he wrote, one of the pivotal passages there is in Galatians 5, verse 6, where he's saying to those who had been tempted to go back to ways, not in this case, not even go back because they were not Jewish, but to adopt uh, the circumcision as, as one of the rituals, uh, as if that would somehow make them more spiritual. He says circumcision or uncircumcision, that doesn't make any difference. The only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is faith that expresses itself in love. 
A faith that expresses itself through love. And so Paul's saying the exact same thing that James is. They're just talking to different kinds of people. James is writing to people like Presbyterians, who will go over and read their Bibles and study and spout off their theology, but they may not do a whole lot. And Paul is writing to people who are trying to be super spiritual and, and bring on, uh, bring, do bring in other things and saying, uh, the thing that matters is you're very simple. Do you believe and is there evidence by the what you do and what you believe? And these people were apparently demonstrating faith by risking their own comfort and maybe even their own lives and ministering to people who were in need, as we will see a bit later. And they're now being commended here. So you and I are given an opportunity to look at our lives and experience an assurance because there is a connection, I believe, uh, that is being revealed here and is taught through the Scripture with our faith and our work that feed one another. Genuine faith produces us, moves us to work because God has prepared good works for us to do. It's our participation in the kingdom of God. But when we are doing the work, that God is calling us to do. We are reminded of our need of faith and we must rest on faith. We're reminded of our need of faith because we get to the end of ourselves and saying, that's enough. And then we realize Jesus never said that's enough. And then we love as we have been loved. We, we recognize that, but we also need to know how much we're loved to continue to press us on at times when we have exhausted ourselves or when we are frightened or discomforted, whatever it might be. Faith and our works go together, but in no way is that suggesting that their works were the basis of their salvation. There's no hint of that here. It is the evidence of the salvation of the believer. I'm going to stop and I'm going to do a shameless plug here. We have an opportunity beginning here in a few minutes to express love. So I've already told Camper to remind me if I forget, but now I'm not forgetting. When the service is over, we're going to need people to set up for the homeless shelter. And people who are in need, people who are broken, people who are hurting, people who are outcasts, people who are disregarded, they're coming to our house this week. And we have the opportunity to work out our faith and loving a people that we might not otherwise be drawn to, to become inconvenienced, to become uncomfortable, even just a little bit, which is consistent with what these people were doing and for which they are confirmed because it was apparently the confirmation of their faith. But nowhere is it being suggested here that that is the basis, the basis is of God's grace to begin with. Now, what do we do with all of this? Well, the writer goes on, and I'm going to do that. Ooh, I'm way over. See what happens when I try to be clearer than I was before. So... Um, I'll wrap this up quick. The writer in verse 11 says this, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of the hope until the end. And that's that connection between our faith expressing itself in love and then our engagement um, renew, helping, uh, reminding us to be renewed in the faith. And so he wants us to do something here so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Continue what you're doing, but imitate those whose faith has already, they're receiving 
the, the promise. And, and then naturally it goes to next passage, our mind should go straight to Abraham because he picks up there and he, and he points to Abraham. Who is, we're told, who believed God and therefore it was credited to him as righteousness. And then because he believed God, he obeyed. The evidence of his belief was obeying. Obedience was not what was merited. It was believing God that led to an obedience. And it required a patience for the promises of God to be fulfilled in his life. And Abraham's a great example for us because in his impatience, he did stupid things, just like we do. But even the stupid things didn't separate him from God or keep him from experiencing the promises of God. Because even though there were foolishness foolish times, he continued to believe he was renewed in that faith and ultimately received the promise of God. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, imitate that faith and faith of others who believed God and knew the relationship was on the basis of believing God's promises. They were related on the basis of trusting in the work of Christ. But then because they believed, they obeyed, they served, they loved because they had been loved. And the writer of Hebrews here is telling us to press on, to move on, to continue on with faith and with patience. Because for those who do, there are better things ahead. There is hope ahead for those who are patient in faith. May that be us. Lord, bless us, we pray. With patience and faith and faith and patience prompting us to serve. To you be all praise and glory. Amen.